So, and as we do, I, I wanted to actually bring something up first, which is, um, have you noticed that Emerald City Comic Con always falls in the dead middle of event comics? It's true, it's true. So, does this mean we have to do another rap battle? Okay, first of all, dude, do you know how long that took to write? And practice? There were a lot of internal rhymes. Uh, fair enough. Okay, so what crossover fire are we jumping into this time? That would be Age of X-Men. Uh, the one where a fake Moira McTaggart creates a podcast... Podcast? This is why you're here live. Yeah, the I one know. where a fake Moira McTaggart creates a pocket dystopia to raise her ex-boyfriend's estranged son's self-esteem. There's a really weird echo. These things happen. All right. Um, but either way, uh, no. The one you're thinking of is Age of X. So this isn't a Legion thing? It's kind of a Legion thing. See, he tried to prevent a, catas a big catastrophe, which in turn precipitated an even worse catastrophe. Oh, okay. So Age of X-Men is the one where Legion went back in time to assassinate his father's greatest rival, but it was while the two of them were still friends, so his dad jumped in front of the bullet, and then the world became a hellish dystopia based on a massive misreading of Darwin. That's Age of Apocalypse. Wait, but isn't that where X-Man comes from? I thought he was the Cable of that timeline. In a manner of speaking, Cable was the biological child of Earth-616 Cyclops and a lab-grown clone of Jean Grey made by a mad scientist after Jean died. X-Man is the lab-grown genetic offspring of the Cyclops and Jean Grey of Earth-295. Is the clone who's Cable's biological mother the same one X-Man hooked up with later? That was her ghost. I'm not sure if that makes it better or worse. I know, right? So anyway, Age of X-Man... Is a universe that Nate Gray... That's the lab-grown one from Age of Apocalypse, right? Right. The other one is Nathan Summers. Okay. Okay, anyway, Age of X-Man is Nate's deeply misguided attempt at creating a perfect world, mostly by eradicating personal intimacy. Run that by me again. Well, he figured that close interpersonal relationships were the basis of most of the factionalism and strife in the world. Oh, wait, I thought strife was a clone of Cable. <laughs> ah, but he was a clone created by Cable's alternate universe sister, so by coincidence, the point actually still stands? Oh, so this isn't just like a no-hanky-panky situation. <laughs> X-Man has actually banned familial relationships, too? Yeah, now you're getting it. Okay, look, I can buy no familiar relationships. Uh, if nothing else, that has to make the Summers, Gray, and Maximoff families a lot simpler. <laughs> but the X-Men are a soap opera. Take away love, let alone romantic tension, and what's left? Okay, first of all, there is secret rom romance all over Age of X-Men. Um, there are also just, you know, secret thought police dedicated to eradicating it. Creepy. Well, yeah, it's a fascist state. You have to establish the screwed-up status quo if the main point of the narrative is breaking it. You know, think about Age of Apocalypse. Okay, fair. Plus, of course, there, there is a resistance who are fighting to bring love back to the world. Well, I should hope so. Who's leading it? Is it Gambit? Ooh, or Rogue and Gambit? It is not. It's gotta be one of the great romances of X-Men, right? Or maybe a group of close family members? Are there any families in X-Men that aren't super dysfunctional? Well, the Guthries, but they're not really involved in this. <laughs> Honestly, though, the Resistance leader is, is probably not who you're expecting. Like, no matter who you're expecting. Is it Sauron? <laughs> no, if it were Sauron, the goal of the Resistance would be for everyone to be dinosaurs. <laughs> well, Which is a valid secondary goal, but love wouldn't be part of it. <laughs> 
well, it can't be Mr. Sinister. He'd be, like, super into a universe where they grew all the kids in labs. Wrong, but you're getting warmer. Can I get a hint? It's someone who could have been a Summers brother. <laughs> that, that doesn't exactly narrow the field. Wait, is it Adam X the Extreme? Is he going to skateboard love back into the world? I appreciate your enthusiasm, but no. What other potential Summers brothers were there? You, you already ruled out Gambit. No way. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. The populist rebel fighting to bring back the power of love is none other than... There is no way you're about to say what I think you're about to say. Apocalypse. What? I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 240 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. Live at Emerald City Comic Con. Uh, with us on the stage, as you may note, are not one, not two, but three guests who are all current writers in Age of X-Ban. Immediately next to me and coming onto the show for the first time is Vida Ayala. Vida Ayala is a queer Afro-Latinx writer out of New York City where they live with their wife and cat sons. They have written for Black Mask Studios, DC Comics, Dark Horse Dynamite, IDW, Image, Marvel, Valiant Comics, and Vault Comics. They're nonstop, like Hamilton. <laughs> We also have two returning guests, and as I introduce them, I would like to qualify that our guests submitted their own bios. We were not the ones who came up with these. Sean and McGuire um, writes things. It is very hard to make her stop, and we don't think she sleeps. <laughs> See, if I'd written this bio, I would also have talked about her cats at length. <laughs> uh, and finally, Leah Williams is a, con is a constant inspiration, which is true, because she shows that you can be a total trash queer on Twitter and still have a great career. <laughs> <laughs> So yes, thank all three of you for being at this table with us talking about X-Men. It's awesome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so first of all, you are all currently writing books set in Age of X-Men, and uh, we're wondering if you can, you can take a moment and introduce the audience to what you're writing and um, sort of what, what the premises are going in, because these are, these are interesting teams. <laughs> Let's start at the Let's go far in publication order. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> idea. I, I like feel that. picked on. <laughs> I would like an adult. <laughs> um, so I'm writing The Amazing Nightcrawler, which is basically the worst Excalibur reunion party ever. Yes. Uh, they let me pick my team and were kind of confused when I just took all of Excalibur off to a corner and started hissing at people. Uh, and uh, we, we are the propaganda book. You can't have a utopia without people going up on screen and saying, we live in a utopia, isn't it nice? And uh, so they make movies at Studio X, and Kurt Wagner is the most famous man in the world. He, he finally gets to be a movie star, <laughs> along with his le lovely leading lady, Megan Poussineau, uh, who is not using the Gloriana handle. And uh, they are supported by the Stepford Cuckoos, <laughs> uh, specifically Celeste and Irma, who both work at Studio X. We have yet to see what is up with Phoebe. Uh, and Kylan and Magma, who are also kicking around. Um, it's a little bit troublesome because I have had to forbid my mother to read it. <laughs> She's never read 
most comics, and I don't want her to meet this version of Kurt Wagner first. <laughs> I just realized how NSFW this entire podcast is going to be. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Their children. Yeah. Yeah. We are, we we are, we are going to do our best to keep it family friendly, so we'll, we'll stick with like Animaniac style double entendres. <laughs> okay. That's a so can I collect I fingerprints? <laughs> my turn it's your turn I am writing extremists which is um, the secret police book it's they are the enforcers um, so they're the only ones who live in this utopia but don't get to participate it participate in it as a utopian society because they are the ones behind the scenes like <clears throat> cleaning up and and you know making sure nobody gets too horny and that kind of thing. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it immediately unravels. That's the story, why this can't work. Um, yeah. That's, that's what I got. <laughs> that is the PG version. Yeah, I know. I'm struggling. <laughs> You're doing it. You're doing it. I believe in you. Uh, Thank you. I'm writing the prison book, so... Uh, uh, as often in a utopian story, there is the dark underbelly, right? So I get to write that part. So uh, you have a character that came from the utopia, and he, Bishop, is your entryway into the dystopian part, which is the prison where they throw everyone that got a little too randy, or <laughs> uh, has family members out there that they might love, that kind of stuff. So you get to see what happens and how they keep uh, the utopia alive by taking away the elements that would then encourage people to have affection for each other, if you will. So, I'm doing it. Yeah, I kind of want to. I kind of want to. Uh, actually, um, the first question coming out of that is is for Vita because it relates to what you just said about Bishop as as the character who's sort of the one who's who's able to see through the utopia into the dystopia. It's the same position he was in in Age of Apocalypse, right? He always knows. <laughs> That's his thing. Um, and I think that that was part of the reason why he was going to be the entryway into the, the real kind of seedy underbelly, right? So you get to see where it starts in Leah's book, and you're just like, oh, that's a dark turn. And so then Bishop leads you to where you get to see the stuff, because he is often the character that kind of has all of the knowledge in his head. Um, and so it's a good, good kind of guy to figure out what's going on with along the way. And yeah, Bishop is a really fascinating character because in addition to being from a dark future and having been central to now two alternate realities, <laughs> he's also been kind of a time-traveling mass murderer and kind of the X-Man who most believed in, like, you know, Xavier's specific dream or at least the interpretation of it. So for you, like, with all these different versions of Bishop that are out there, like, who is Lucas Bishop at his core? I think to me at his core, he's someone that wants to kind of uncover mysteries and fix problems. And I think... In this book, and I can't give away too much, right? I don't want to spoil it for you guys. <laughs> um, but at the core of him, he is somebody that wants to make things better for everybody that would have an M carved into their eyeball. And so to do that, sometimes he makes some real wrong moves. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think uh, his particular kind of ability to suss out the truth of whatever timeline he's in is the fun of it, for sure. Um, yeah, he's done some not so cool things, but uh, at the end of the day, he's just trying to do right by mutants. So, I have so much love for Lucas Bishop. Yeah, I, I, I will say I wanted to have mullet Bishop, and that was not a thing. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> but I so, did sneak mullet Bishop in there for like a second, so that's for everybody that loves the Jerry curl. I got y'all. <laughs> I mean. 
any any uh, you, dystopia disguising itself as a utopia, like the cracks show, and that's I think the main reason we can tell that Age of X Men is really problematic because no no mullet, no mullet, show. no mullet. So I feel like <laughs> talking about the pro- problematic a- aspects of Age of X Men kind of leads really neatly into Leah's book because Leah is Leah, you are in the the challenging and fascinating position of writing. I mean, calling them the love cops implies that it's a kind of different type of book, but, um, <laughs> I would but watch that you're, read that. you're, you're right. You're writing basically the, the, the fascist enforcers in the society, but you're also writing a team, you know, you're writing a book that seems to be very much about people who are complicit in the system, gradually becoming aware of and, and, and facing off against it. If you have to start by establishing their complicity, how do you build those characters as sympathetic and how do you, and I, without, if, if there's a way to answer this without spoilers, how do you sow the seeds of their eventual rebellion um, in ways that, that an audience will buy? Um, I, I'm gonna talk about this in a way that, and just be honest, that I don't know if I'm succeeding in, in doing that yet and I probably won't be able to tell until the last issue comes out and I get a response because when I first accepted this project, um, I, the, the way that they approached it to me, I was like, ooh, that's really problematic, you guys. Like, that's queer erasure. Can I make my story about that, about the problems with it? Can I be honest in the story that I want to tell? Um, and they're just like, yeah, go for it. So I have two gay characters on my team, and uh, it's, it's because North Star, especially, is kind of my ringer. Um, because he historically is uh, anti-fascist, anti-authority, anti-government, and he is also a gay man, and he is, you know, Marvel's first openly gay man. Um, so I immediately wanted him on my team, and he's he's definitely the one. And I can I can talk about it because it's the cover for issue four. He's um, definitely the one who wakes up first and takes a look around, and he's furious. <laughs> so I got to devote an issue to gay rage, and um, I'm really grateful that and I got to literal, to do that. not just allegorical gay rage, yeah. like literal gay rage. Yeah. Excellent. So. Um, I, I knew that I wanted to make my team sympathetic despite what they were doing because they've been brainwashed. They are not complicit of their own choice. These are heroes who were brought into this world and their memories were tampered with. Um, they've had knowledge of their family members taken away. Um, and I, I find this heartbreaking to have their like queer identity literally erased from their minds as well as all of their community, all of their family, and then they're brought into this world where they're told, okay, now you gotta tear couples apart and you have to, you know, mind wipe them so they don't remember you. That's horrifying to me. So I'm glad that I'm able to write a mini series that can do that justice and, and not downplay it and and not treat them as like, you know, really Badass um, kind of guys, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, or or they're you know. not the they're not the the traditional protagonists, right? They yeah. are we're yes. seeing yeah. the other yes. side. Yes, um, but I, I just wanted to tell a story with some some tenderness without looking away from how problematic it is. I was going to come back to this later, but you mentioned the cover of of the last issue and. As the covers were revealed, one of the really, one of the 
one of the things that, that one, of the, one of the more interesting and telling parts of a fan response to it was the extent to which even in a story about how there's, you know, there, how love in general is taboo, um, the audience responses to cover, some of the cover reveals were incredibly telling about, you know, love that audiences and readers and even relatively progressive readers see as taboo. And I was wondering, can you talk about that a little bit? Because that was, that was fascinating and heartbreaking and infuriating to watch, but it also led to some really important conversations. Yes, I, I completely agree with you on that. It's been um, tough for me to kind of witness this at the level that I'm at, where I see a lot of reactions at once, and a lot of it directed my way. So when people are unhappy about a blob romance and about the fact that I'm not using his size as a punchline, um, I, I was really surprised and, and kind of heartbroken about how much negativity I got for that, uh, which is the cover to issue three. And it's a beautiful cover. It's, so there's a, a Blob Psylocke romance in my book, um, and it works, it works. And the cover to issue three, it looks like a romance novel. There's this beautiful sunset, and we just have their silhouette standing in front of it and holding hands. And it is exactly the like energy and the tenderness that their relationship actually has. But people saw that cover and, I mean, they were upset because Blob is a villain, but, you know, it's not, not in this world, he's not. Um, and they were upset because uh, any number of reasons, but so many of them boiled down to the fact that we, we don't like seeing a character with this size portrayed positively. And I have never felt belligerent towards fans <laughs> until this moment because it made me so just fiercely determined, like, okay, well, y'all are gonna shut up and take your medicine because if this is the way you're reacting with this kind of vitriol, you know, towards a character that you're, you're treating as, as fat and as disgusting because of their size, then it just makes me all the more determined to make you ship Blobsy. I like that. I like, yeah. I like spite. Also cute as <laughs> like, spite. So yeah, like, I, I have like never had that experience until this point because it was something that I already wanted to do um, initially, knowing that Age of X-Men, this world, there's no physical prejudices. So when I found out that Blob was up for grabs, I was like, yep, dibs. I, yep, mm -hmm. shotgun. And uh, <laughs> he, we get to do uwu blob. He's just a sweet cinnamon roll um, because the way this world, it, it's better for him here <laughs> in many ways. And he hasn't had to face the same ridicule and he's somebody who's always been desperate for approval and desperate to be loved. And he gets that in Age of X-Men. Well, and he doesn't, um, he doesn't just get that in the ways that he has in, in, in a lot, like, I'm thinking of Evolution Blob, especially, who starts mm -hmm. out as sympathetic, but yeah. for whom, but, but who is always still kind of treated as a punchline by the other characters. And one of the things that is phenomenal about this book, and that is gonna be really striking if you haven't read it when you read it, is the extent to which Georges Gianti, who's the artist, draws Blob as sexy. Like, mm -hmm. he is, very fat, and he looks like himself, and his body and his posture and his relation in panels is drawn the way it absolutely should be, which is as an attractive character who's partly at the center and, and perspective of things. And it's such a different way to frame that character. And it's such, again, 
a powerful reminder of, of something that's so largely absent from representation of fat characters. Um, that it's at the same time that, that people are yelling and being dicks about this on the internet, it's kind of revolutionary and wonderful to see. Like, there is no question looking back, and that blob can get it. Like, yeah. he is, he he's is, hot. Yeah, he's super hot. He has a mustache. And it's kind of nice. Yeah, and he wears it really well. It's so funny, too, because this is like the, the no. No hooking up book. No, um, I, I, <laughs> that's a good trying way to put so it. hard. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> the the no no sex book, and there are the enforcers on it. But even still, they all look like they um, get down yeah. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> and uh, like the suspenders and the handlebars. Yeah, section, right? and sure enough, you know, it's it's yeah. They they of, all kind yeah. of have a. They actually all seriously have kind of a leather daddy vibe going. Yeah, was, they that, do. was that planned? That was intentional. Okay. It was intentional. <laughs> yeah, that was Raza. He's the one doing the covers now, and he also came up with the character designs. So we've got Iceman um, <laughs> in in kind of like a leather daddy scene. Um, you know, bare chested, the suspenders. It's yeah. But also, he has an armband on him too, which is something that's that I've talked scary. about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah. that's supposed to be like an immediate red flag too. That's yeah. that's not something we're fetishizing. That's something yeah. that we're looking at. Like, okay, just so you know, this is going to get dealt with. Well, and so spinning off of the um, Blobsy, was it Blob Betsy? Yes, yes. Blobsy is um, a ship name. Yeah. Then, <laughs> Sean, in in, um, in your book, in the Amazing Nightcrawler, we have a romance that's also central to it between Nightcrawler and Megan. At least, you know, as of, as of issue one, which is like so much more of like a traditional expected romance, but it's these people who are already on display. And I was curious. So obviously, you mentioned you were grabbing Excalibur characters and then hissing at people, which I think is a great philosophy, and I fully support. <laughs> um, uh, we. We call this move the Lockheed? Yes. <laughs> uh, but as far as like, you know, I think Nightcrawler's the obvious choice, especially as like a prominent sexy X-Men character, but I was curious about your thoughts in bringing Megan specifically into that role. So in many, many ways, Kurt and Megan are standing on opposite sides of a super fun prejudice conversation. Um, because Kurt is, is very much, he's always visibly been a mutant. Mm -hmm. You know, he's blue, he's fuzzy, he's got the tail. We all think he's hot, but we're all weirdos who read X-Men. We don't, we don't live in that world. You know, um, we're, we're the 12-year-olds who had posters of Kurt Wagner on our closet doors and thought, I could get that. Um, one of the things that, that has never really been dealt with much in the comics, though, is Megan is Ramana Chal. Megan comes from an incredibly um, sidelined and persecuted racial group. The Romanachal are a, uh, a racial subgroup of the Roma. Um, they uh, arose in Europe a uh, long time ago uh, by human lifespans, not by generational lifespans. And uh, you can't own property in large parts of the United Kingdom if you're Romanachal. You can't own horses. Uh, you can't necessarily travel freely if you are, if you look Romanachal or you look partially Roma. Uh, Anti-Roma racism in Europe is, is massive, right? People ignore that with Megan because she's an empathic metamorph who turned herself into the perfect white woman to get with Captain Britain. The perfect white woman. She is the most white passing character in all of Marvel comics because people forget. They got mad at Psylocke, who did not have any agency 
in having her race changed. Megan changed her own because it was the only way to escape. She had to be so passing that no one could get rid of her. Uh, when I was a child, when I was a kid reading Excalibur, I was terrified for her every issue because I was waiting for the day Captain Britain realized, and, and I am going to say a racial slur, but it's one that belongs to me because of who my father is, uh, the day that Captain Britain realized he was touching a filthy gypsy. I had had that yelled at me, I had had that thrown at me when I visited my family in Europe, and it is, it is horrible to me that she has had to put that so far away to be able to be happy and be able to, uh, to deal with, Cap to live with Captain Britain and have this happy life. So my Megan Nightcrawler relationship, while it is expected because it's built on from Excalibur, it's also kind of a statement for me of Megan still has to hide. Right? Yeah. Megan still looks yeah. like the perfect white woman because at the point that that utopia begins, she is already too damaged to go back. She is gonna stay that perfect woman. She can't be anyone else. And we call that out in issue one. You know, Nightcrawler mm -hmm. flat out says, you still have to hide. I don't like that the rest of us got to take off our masks and you still have yours. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's why I went with the expected ones. Also, I really love Megan. She's the uh, only character with my racial background in all of Marvel and was always super, super important to me and getting them to make me give her back is gonna be really hard because I'm running away to Bermuda. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wanna spin off from that into an, another set of characters who I know are really important to you but who are also in, in, in um, Amazing Nightcrawler. Astonishing Nightcrawler? Amazing Nightcrawler. Amazing Nightcrawler. Amazing Nightcrawler. There's so many adjectives. There's um, so many adjectives. <laughs> we've seen, we're seeing another type of relationship that's been banned, um, and we're seeing one of the rare examples of, of it being able to be played out in public, and that's a sibling relationship between the cuckoos. Yeah, I'm the familial relationships yeah. book. Um, and uh, that is because they, they actually let me make explicit something that Grant Morrison made implicit, which is that the cuckoos do not do well when separated. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why they've stayed together, even when we see them fighting so hard. When, you're, when your mutant power is literally a hive mind, uh, it's really not good for you to not have the rest of your hive around. And uh, they have been allowed to stay together. Nate Gray has, has kind of made an exception for them because if you are a utopia that celebrates all mutation and all mutation is good, but your mutation means you need your sister or you snap, uh, we let you keep your sister. And, and this has cost a lot more than people have seen yet. The cuckoos, the cuckoos have paid to be allowed to still be sisters, and they are still paying. They pay socially, again, in issue one, so the only non-spoiler issue. Uh, people are disgusted. People are, are horrified and upset that they are flaunting themselves by just existing and just being there. Um, and I, I love the cuckoos so much, so. I love everyone in my book. They let me have everybody I love. I mean, they didn't let either of us have Emma, but I think that's because they she were- She was already spoken She was for. already spoken We tried. For, but I also think they were afraid that like Leah and I would set up a pudding pool in the lobby of Marvel and start wrestling until they decided <laughs> one of us could have her. Like, I mean, I'm down if you I'm down. Oh, I, wrestling for I sort of figured it was no, because we'll they, like they realized that you'd just Voltron up. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah we are a Voltron. Yeah, yeah. that's true. I'm realizing, listening to you guys talk about this too, um, it's never become more clear to me that we've been given sandboxes where there were certain restrictions in terms of like world building, like this is, this is what we're giving you, this is the, the environment. But as far as what you do in it and, oh, and yeah. who, you, who you bring into it, who you tell the stories with, they're giving us free reign. 
So we're all telling stories that we are incredibly passionate about. Absolutely. And I think it was in a way, I mean, mine has the physical restraints as well because it is just a, like one place. It's a prison. But like that really allowed me personally, and I can't speak for you clearly, um, to really go into it. Mm -hmm. Because oh, yeah. when you have too yeah. much room, you don't know, you kind of spread yourself thin. But if you have that kind of like, this is my area, oh, I'm going to fill it. I'm going to fill oh, it completely. Yeah, totally. It's going to be like... And we've all come up with things they didn't think we'd question them on, which is delightful. Yep. I've had like a page, how do you make a baby? Uh, but I've also been... <laughs> I did that too. Right. I, we were driving them up a tree, but yeah. I've also been sending them the German language primers because the, the cool. one note I get on Curtis, he needs to sound more German. And I'm like, the one note I'm Can getting from every German reader we have in the world is he needs to sound less like what an American thinks a German sounds like. So <laughs> let's, uh, let's try to meet in the middle. But they'll, they'll suggest words I can shove in there. Like he could just say, mein Gott. Well, there is no God in this world. So why would he say that? Oh. Well, can you call Megan Fraulein a couple times? Yeah. Fraulein explicitly means an unmarried woman, and there is no marriage in this world, so why do we do that? But that's so fun. It so is. Like, being able to be like, actually. <laughs> I, have, I, have managed, I have managed to slip some absolutely... We're putting it back. Like, <laughs> I, I have managed to get some absolutely filthy German porn, German like profanity in there because no one's seen they it. They won't before. let me do like Quebecois curse words. Though. Yeah, because Quebecois curse words are a lot more familiar than you can eat my entire ass in German. Whoa! <laughs> sorry. Sorry. We're so sorry. I don't know how to say it either, but I sure can type it. <laughs> I mean, I didn't think anybody, you know, in the States would necessarily recognize all the like Catholic church based cuss words but they have. No, there's a Catholic lot of Catholic Catholics church here. based cuss words when there is no God. Yeah. Because he's still from Montreal. You're okay. blowing my mind because now I didn't think about those language things because I was just like, how do I make this not Oz? <laughs> so, now I'm like, did I put those in there? Am I messing this up? It's I, Bishop, I, it's fine. I mean, I did have Megan go off on like a solid block of Ramonicelle cursing at one point and they made me take that out because there's never been any evidence that she spoke another language. And I'm like, we have seen literal pictures of her and her family Campana when she was a kid. So yes, there is absolutely evidence because Roma parents and Romana Chell parents, they do not teach us English. <laughs> that is not what they are yelling. So, I'm going to take things back out a little bit. <laughs> you, no, this is, this is amazing. Like, I, I, I kind of want to just have the rest of this panel be, be about developing and exploring that world, but I can't. I mean, I guess I can. It's our panel. I mean, if they let um, us stay for like a couple more hours. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd really like to just do that. Um, although, no, actually, I should mention while I'm thinking about it and before we're on our way out, this panel is immediately followed by our fifth birthday party. It is at Phoenix Comics, which is on um, which is on Broadway East. Yeah, I think so. Um, it's it's a it's a medium length walk from here or a very short um, cab or Uber ride. And um, it's wonderful. It is our favorite local comic shop. We've, they've, they've been hosting our parties for the last few years. It's an all-ages meetup, no con badge required. There will be b both pizza and pie from my favorite Portland pie place. Mm. And I guess you guys can have some, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and yeah, we, we would love to have you join us afterwards. And I am really glad I remembered that. Now I can go back to the panel. Um, but I, I, do want, I do want to pull out a little bit, because all three of you are not new to you, but relatively new to you. Okay, no, oh god. It all 
always thank you for coming to our podcast. I'm really disappointed that it was me that left that hard. I'm very sorry. Wow, the first really filthy double entendre was me or Leah. Thank you. We win. We win. Anyway, I'm so sorry. Shannon already said eat my entire ass, so I feel like, I mean, that wasn't a double entendre, but that was a very single entendre. There was actually a long discussion of like cannibalism relative to pornography on a panel I was no, on yesterday. No, no, no. But um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it was a really interesting panel actually. Um, but that wasn't what it was about. It was it was about it was about representations of sex in comics. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I want to pull the focus back a little bit uh-huh. and talk about so so. All three of you have been writing comics for a long time, but you were all new as, or new within the last year and change as writers to the X line, and you're all coming in as fans and as folks who are very, very familiar with this stuff and with the characters and with the world. And so I've got two questions that kind of go together on that for all of you. And the first is, what coming in you feel like defines X-Men? You know, what, what does an X-Men book need to be an X book, um, and second, what's been what what have been the most rewarding and challenging aspects of going from interacting with the line primarily as a reader and a deeply invested fan to someone who's taking an active role in defining and creating it? I'm gonna go last. <laughs> <laughs> I literally just monologued. This is not fair. <laughs> okay, I'll go because I know what I want to say about this. Um, to me, one of the most defining aspects of X-Men comics is having a found family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Avengers are co-workers, but the X-Men, they are a family, and they are each other's chosen family. Um, and that's part of the reason why, uh, you know, we're always drawn to them in particular and, and treat it kind of personally in a way that we don't with other characters. Um, so that, that sort of like ride or die family mentality um, is, is what I think uh, most crucial to um, X-Men comics. Um, it's, it's not marginalization, it is not the struggle, um, n- you know, not the mutant metaphor, but the found family despite all of that, if that makes sense. Totally, yeah. yeah. And was the other part of the question? Um, the, uh, basically, what, what, what have been some of the most challenging and rewarding aspects of going from interacting with oh, X-Men right, primarily right. It's as terrifying. a reader to a creator? It's yeah. terrifying. Because when you come into something that you love this much and you've been writing fan fiction for, um, <laughs> in, and, and you get the email from Marvel, like, hey, have you ever thought about writing comics when you're sitting in front of a 15-foot-long vinyl poster of all of the X-Men? Like, it's, it, it's scary. You got the um, that's what it's like. Yeah, yeah. You're it's a go wizard, time. Harry. <laughs> um, and I, I never felt it so keenly as I did when I was writing X Men Black Emma Frost because I am a prostitute. Uh, <laughs> fangirl. I'm, I'm an Emma Frost fangirl. And um, for the first time, I realized what a liability that can be when you love. Uh, character that much, it can be a kind of blindness. <laughs> so I was sending Jordan White, my editor, emails that were basically fan fiction. It was like 700 to 600 words just because I was excited and talking a lot and, you know, rambling and telling them all my ideas at once because I was just too excited not to. And 
that's not chill. That's not a cool thing to do. So um, I, I had that learning experience with X-Men Black, uh, Emma Frost. So for, for me, what makes an X-Men comic, um, weirdly, because we have found family in other comics and other places uh, under the right guidance, the Teen Titans are a, fi a found family, under the right guidance, the Legion of Superheroes is a found family, you get that. Uh, I'm also a musician, I do folk music, and, and for me, the X-Men are the team that lives in the hesitation. Um, the most important part of a song for me, weirdly, is not the lyrics, it's the places where the song stops for just a moment, and it lets you breathe, and it lets the measure breathe. And what makes an X-Men book is that the X-Men breathe. They go to dance class, they have sleepovers, they play baseball games, but it doesn't come off as fan service or pandering because they have always had that space to stop and, and, and breathe. Um, if you wanna hear what I mean, uh, listen to some early Counting Crows music. I know they're not for everybody, um, but Adam Duretz is a poet uh, who builds the breathing into what he's doing because that's how he gets you uh, where he needs you to be. We're waking up, Maria, because everybody's got a place to go. And she makes a little motion with her head, says one more minute. And he has no sense of musicality, but he has such an amazing sense of time that time fills you. And that's the X-Men for me. They are, a, they are an overture. And I have been writing music my whole life to try to write this overture. Um, I'm, I'm with Leah on being a massive, massive Emma Frost fangirl. She's one of two X-Men my mother can, re can reliably identify. Um, <laughs> because I have a giant poster of Emma Frost above my writing desk. I'm going to jump there. in really quickly and say you can hear Shannon and Leah um, along with me and my wife, Dee, who's an avid Emma Frost cosplayer, and um, eventually my friend Kel and Shannon's agent Diana talk at exhaustive length about Emma Frost on one of the convention specials from New York. While getting drunk. Yes, so, this is yes. a good way of saying please so don't turn know. this into rhapsodizing about Emma, which I'm not going to. <laughs> uh, there's, a giant, there's a giant poster of her above my desk, and it's the first ever appearance of Emma Frost. It's the poster they sent to comic book stores six months before she would appear in the comics. And mom can also identify Jean Grey, because every time Jean Grey comes back from the dead, I go into a towering incandescent rage. Um, <laughs> you know, so that's fun. Uh, for me, the scariest thing has been the crushing weight of canon. Uh, my first piece was the X-Men Gold Annual, which was uh, Kitty Pride's semi-retconned, really slipped into the cracks first kiss. And uh, when I wrote the panel description for panel one, I sat there and sobbed for 10 minutes. Uh, which sounds funny, but it was actually like really emotionally upsetting and draining because those are canonical trees now. Um, it doesn't matter if it gets retconned tomorrow, I still made that. And I have to be constantly aware that I am setting up the canon for the next nine-year-old girl sitting under a poster of Emma Frost, dreaming of having this world, and I can do harm. I can do harm without meaning to. I can say something to my artist that they don't fully understand what I meant because they're not psychic, and suddenly <laughs> I have hurt someone. Uh, and that's really, really scary. Um, and also sometimes my ideas are not exactly what editorial's ideas are, and then we stare at each other like venomous snakes for a while until somebody <laughs> slithers away. Uh, and I'm still a baby X-Men writer, so I mostly slither away. Uh, but, but someday I won't have to <laughs> as much. Um, for me, 
and this is going to sound strange, especially coming off of <laughs> what Leah and Sean have said, um, but for me, uh, something that's essential to X-Men books is loneliness. Um, and it's kind of a recognition of loneliness in other people. And I don't know, I, it's weird because you want to read it and you want to experience it, but it's also, you want to experience it because you feel it, right? So like, yeah. it's that recognition of that pain in the book and the perseverance to keep going in whatever they're doing. Um, so it sounds like kind of a bummer, but also it's, it's not a bummer. <laughs> it's also what makes the X-Men fandom extraordinary in particular. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, I totally agree with you, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so uh, for me, finding in the Age of X-Men universe, that is very explicit. <laughs> so it made my job a little bit easier in terms of that, but also finding this balance of one of the things that makes that loneliness so impactful is that they do reach for each other. And so how do I write a book in which literally they're in prison <laughs> for wanting a connection? How do I get them the connection but also really acknowledge that that lonely space is, is the center of my book? Um, and it, it's a hard balance to walk. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and especially when we're talking about prison um, and talking about <laughs> putting a black man in prison. <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, it's really, really rough. But I think, I think I was really blessed to have Herman be my artist because what he can do with facial expressions and with space and with composition really gets that across. There's this page, uh, page three of the first issue, and it's just a splash page, which I never could have gotten away with in a regular X-Men book, because it's very quiet. Um, Bishop has just been put into his cell, so it's just him after they've taken the cuffs off, and he's like rubbing his wrist, yeah. and he looks so sad and so lonely. And I was like, I got a lot of people messaging me, and they're like, yo, that was like really intense. And I was yeah. like, good, I want you to feel that. Yeah. <laughs> I want you to feel like what's happening to this person is not okay, and it doesn't matter what they look like, you connect with that loneliness and you connect with that, like, what, what is my life now? I don't understand. Um, and so people have reacted really, really positively towards it. Um, and they really feel Bishop, even though, you know, very few of us have, you know, in terms of the people that have contacted me and in terms of myself have been in that specific situation. It kind of, it's almost, I don't know, you, the empathy that Herman can inspire with those facial expressions is exactly like, what I wanted. And it's the way that you're writing yeah. Bishop, too. Like, you're going to inspire an entire new generation of Bishop fans based off the, the strength of Prisoner <laughs> yeah. X alone. No, I'm serious. No, it's, yeah. it's incandescent. Yeah. It's absolutely incredible. Um, and I can't believe they're letting any of us do this. <laughs> <laughs> what I think is really interesting, though, I mean, we're all coming at it from such different angles, but we're actually saying very much the same thing. Which is you being know, critical of which, it. Which, which is not only being yeah. critical of it, but also if you're not lonely, you don't reach for family. Finding your family, found families come from a place of loneliness. And the reach is that pause that I'm talking about uh, in the music. There's a, a show called Little Shop of Horrors. I always take things back to either musical or reptile <laughs> metaphors, but there's a show called Little Shop of Horrors, and my favorite moment in the whole show is in the finale, which is called Don't Feed the Plants. There's this yes. huge crescendo. The whole <laughs> cast sings, you know, Don't Feed the Plants. And Audrey and Seymour reach for each other across the stage, and they sing one line, uh, which is, We'll Have Tomorrow. 
And that line is the literal only remnant of a song called We'll Have Tomorrow that was cut in the pre-Broadway tryouts. So that moment stands in for an entire song, an entire indrawn breath, and that's the loneliness. That's what anchors the entire production. So we're, we're talking around the same big object. It's kind of cool. I feel like that also, I, I think we, you said it was kind of like a disadvantage a little bit to love something so much. So Bishop was like one of my two first X-Men. Actually, Bishop, Bishop Storm and Wonder Woman were why I started reading comics, because mm-hmm. uh, I saw brown people and who I mistook for a brown person on a comic book. <laughs> It's a problem I have. (laughs) She looked like my cousin. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Um, But I saw this black dude with the dopest mullet. (laughs) And I was like, I don't remember what year. It wasn't, it was in an X-Men title. It wasn't his own title, but he was on the cover. And it was like, first appearance of like, you know, Bishop. And I was like, oh, this guy. And I reached for this comic book. And it's like, yo, it, it is a lot of pressure, like having to write a book about Bishop. But like also like you can, yeah. the love that you have for something means that you're gonna put as much work into making sure that the next person that sees it loves it just as much as you do. 100%, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, like I, I'm very transparent about my agenda and like I want you to love the characters that I'm writing. I want you to love them the way that I love them. I, and, and I love getting to write new characters too because that's when I meet new parts of the fandom and they reach out to me for the first time when something gets announced um, and you know start talking to me about what they personally love about this character. And then I, it, it gives me a whole new appreciation. Mm-hmm. Like I, I met the Nate Gray fandom only <laughs> recently. And they're intense. Bless their hearts. They're not having a good time right now. No. But I, I, I didn't know that they existed in those numbers or with that passion until they said hi to me. You know, it, it's just beautiful um, yeah. being a part of something this this bigger than than ourselves. I think. Oh man, and um, speaking of bigger than the people at this table, there are lots of people um, out here, and I wish we could just keep talking about this forever, but they only give us so much time. So um, we try to do some time for questions at the end of every live episode slash panel we do. So if folks have questions for the awesome writers up here, or for some reason for me and Jay, or for everybody, uh, there's a microphone right there, and people should just like you know line up and and ask so things. there are questions of access to this. If you have a question and getting to the mic is difficult for you, raise your hand. Yes. Um, a friend of ours has volunteered to come to you, get what your question is, take it to the mic and ask it. So um, we will make sure that everyone who wants to be heard from is heard from. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hi. Uh, Jack is so cool. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Since we're talking about event comics, I was wondering what you consider, what X-Men event you consider have done the most for the line? Um, Not necessarily your favorite, but just has done the most for the line. And then conversely, uh, which one either wasn't great or actively hurt the line? Well, uh, from my perspective of getting to write this event, the event that did the most for the line was Age of X. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. Uh, Um, I'm I'm gonna say House of M on both counts. (laughs) Ooh, interesting. And and I'm gonna go with House of M, which that is my gold standard event. That is the Platinum, um, followed by the Decimation, because they Mm. did, well, one, Decimation doesn't work if you're taking out more than, you know, but apart from that, they never committed. I want full committing and 
Inexplicably, we have depowered all the mutants except for the ones who have successful toy lines. Just does not make much sense. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to answer Fall of the Mutants for both because oh. it was what started the crossover events. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> wow. For me, I think the crossover that did the most for the line was Inferno because it showed that you could have. Yeah. No, hear me out. That's because it's always Inferno in here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, because it showed that you could have gigantic events that affected the entire X universe and you could have different groups of characters being impacted by those events very, very differently and have it all matter and have it all relate. That's and true. Yeah. Yeah. For me, like you know, just having you know your X Factor versus your X Force versus your X Men versus your whatever. Like, I love that there's so many ways to take like the X concept, and Inferno just did that really well. As far as what did at least well, I don't know. I just want to talk about how I like Inferno. (laughs) (laughs) Hi. Um, I have a comment for Leah Williams. I just want to say that. it's not too often that you get to see like a really good representation of a plus size character within a book. And uh, I picked up uh, your book because I read uh, an article about the horny Gestapo cops. <laughs> and then I read about uh, the Blob and Psylocke relationship and I picked it up and I loved it. And Blob is great in that book. Thank you. No problem. And then the question for all three is, so it seems like you guys got to put together your cast of characters that you wanted. Um, Was there any one character that you wanted that you didn't get to have for your book? So I didn't get to put together mine. They just handed it to me, and I was like, heck yeah. Um, But I did ask for the cuckoos. (laughs) Uh, And they were like, no, (laughs) absolutely not. And I'm glad that they did. I'm glad they said no. I, I just thought that I could get them because they were family. Right, they put them in the no, that makes total But sense. I love that you have them and what you're doing with them. So, <laughs> um, I asked for Emma Frost, Ileana, <laughs> <laughs> Ileana and um, Maggot. Oh, Maggot! Yeah. I, I also asked for Emma Frost and Ileana. Um, but but the one I actually tried to fight for was Melody Guthrie. And uh, unfortunately, after lots lots of back and forth, like we got to the point where I had laid out my first script with her, uh, she was not available. Oh, uh, Sabretooth. I couldn't have Sabretooth. Thank you very much. So we're going to have to go through these as fast as we can. I'd like everyone to get to ask, but we've, yeah, just... Uh, So if you could bring in one character from a different franchise, like how Conan's with the Avengers right now, who would you pick? To the X-Men, of course. To be an X-Person? Or like just in the universe? Either one. Um, Like to interact with the X-Men, either as a crossover or like as an X-Man. Jake the dog. As an (laughs) X-Man. That's good. Uh, Ooh. Probably Renee Montoya. Yes. She's real tired. She's trying her best. She needs a nap. She needs a nap. (laughs) She needs that gap. So the last time we did that, we got stuck with Wolverine and 17 books at once. Um, (laughs) I'm going to stay with an empty bed. (laughs) Look, we have room for guests. Can you tip it? Nice. There we go. Thank you. Yeah. My question is, what is your favorite New Mutants crossover? Oh, oh gosh. That's a hard-hitting question. <laughs> oh, 
I know exactly what mine is. Then go. I, it's, I've been thinking about this one a lot lately because I've been thinking about Warlock a lot lately. And yes. it's, it's a moment of crossover, but there's, there's a holiday special. Um, it's actually, it's not a New Mutants issue. It's, it's a holiday special in, in uh, Journey into Mystery, with, which at that point was the Kid Loki series. And there's a New Mutants cameo in it, and Warlock gets um, a puppy hellhound. <laughs> and it's a really good moment, and it just... I, I don't know that it's the best, but in terms of like the single crossover moment that has given me the most joy, I think that's it. That's a good one. Oh man, I've got, I forgot. There's like so many answers here. Um, the one that's in, in my mind right now, though, is um, U.S. Avengers: The Friendship of Sunspot and Cannibal, and that, and seeing how that friendship translates to an entirely different corner of the Marvel universe, and is still like that intense, and still based on that kind of playful antagonism and utter loyalty makes me so happy. Oh yeah, for those of you who are New Mutants fans, every Avengers title that Al Ewing has written in the last five years is a stealth New Mutants book. Yup. <laughs> and they're all great. Mine's a moment like yours. It's not like a specific crossover, but Danny Moonstar is it was in Fearless Defenders and just mm -hmm. her popping up was really important to me. <laughs> I'm gonna cheat and use um, the magic solo, the four issue magic solo, yeah. uh, because we do see the new mutants in it. Um, but it's uh, heartbreaking and such a beautiful story. I'm a pedantic academic, so I'm gonna say that Generation X counts as New Mutants, since that was the New Mutant team for its time. Um, for, for a while there, you could literally predict which character was gonna get killed off by which one I immediately wanted to get tattooed on my face. And, uh, so the moment in Age of Apocalypse, where suddenly a portal opens and you get this word balloon that's like, clear the decks, mutant cheesecake coming through, and Blink hits down, I literally did a touchdown shuffle in my comic book store. Um, so that was, that is mine. Nice. Good question. Hi. Uh, one of my favorite things outside of X-Men is West Wing, and I think that X-Men deals with politics a ton. Yeah, Aaron Stark, great stuff. Um, I would love to see a book that's the X-Men dealing with the political arena more explicitly rather than kind of like implying it. Who do you think you would put on a team that you know dealt with things like that? Emma Frost. Emma Frost. Emma. Yeah. Why did I ask? <laughs> like, have you ever she's tactical, she's yeah. smart, she's telepathic, yeah. so you're going to agree yeah, with right. her whether you exactly. wanted to or well, not. That's, that's great. Have, that's you ever, have you ever watched Ooh. Leverage? Emma Frost would just Sophie Devereaux stealing the Senate her way in yeah. there. Yeah. Five minutes later, she's been president for 20 years and everyone's cool with it. Yeah. Uh, Kitty Pride. Yeah. 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 Kitty Pride and Storm. 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 Really has should have a lot to say. Yeah. <laughs> and you figure when you can call lightning, people let you say it. <laughs> also, also her, arms, her arms are very, yeah. Yeah. very convincing. Um, yeah. And yeah, I guess. I would put Namor on there too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and to Namor is a Namor and Storm has also been is, is a head of state. Yeah. Admittedly, he practices diplomacy in a kind of. Anyway, he's not. <laughs> Diplomats. Uh, Beast, Beast is a character we've Beast. seen interact with that in a lot of really interesting Absolutely. ways and make yeah. a lot of kind of devil's bargains around political respectability that occasionally leads to him stripping off his clothes and jumping out a window at Harvard. So It happens. It's a thing. Um, I'd love to see Prodigy. I just want to see some oh, yeah. people who are thoughtful yeah. in office. That would be great. <laughs> I want to see Quentin Quire burn it all down. <laughs> 
Okay, we have like two minutes, so let's do lightning round for the last two people. All right. Uh, are there any creators who, regardless of what book they're on, you will buy that no matter what? Like, oh. I'll pick up anything by Sam Keith. Is there anything like that for Carlos you guys? Carlos Keith McNeil. These guys. <laughs> oh, we love you too. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's basic. That, that, yeah. like, including the Carlos Keith McNeil part, that's basically my list too. Yeah. Right. Both my at this table. Um, also, Kelly Thompson is doing phenomenal work right now. Yes. Yeah, that's yes. true. All right. Thank you. Good question. Hey, so my question was not fast, but I'm going to try to make it fast. Um, so Bobby Drake recently at the end of Extermination, um, his younger self basically had to go back into the closet. And I didn't know he was going to be in this book that you just described. And I'm like, I'm behind. Um, how are you going to deal with that kind of like double? Because he's aware that it happened. I, I'm just kind of curious. So these are things that have been um, taken from him, these memories okay. specifically. Because everything, for Department X to function, they've been... Their, their minds have been manhandled more than most um, because they've had all of their sexuality erased, all of their memories pertaining to it. Knowledge of the human reproductive system. I mean, it is like, as much as you can possibly take from them has been taken. So the story I'm interested in telling most is the way Bobby's gonna react when he wakes up and he remembers. Because okay. that's the story worth telling, and that's what I'm most excited about. All right, I, I guess, sorry. like, in addition, really quick. Uh, um, no, I'm sorry. No, we, we okay. have the time's up sign. Um, talk to me after. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. This is okay. come to the party. I think we're all going to be at the convention tomorrow. Are we? Oh. Yeah. Huh? Yes. 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 In, in, in various presences. Yep. First of all, thank you all so much for coming. Thank you to Emerald City for hosting us again. Yes. Thank you. Um, to our producer, Matt, who is not here but makes us sound uh, listenable. Yeah, can we actually do an extra round of applause for Matt? Because he is phenomenal. Um, our illustrator, David, who is not here and whose birthday was last week, who is yes. phenomenal and who, who drew that Lila shirt that some of you are wearing. Yeah. But yes, mostly thanks to all of you for coming. It's always amazing to meet and see again and talk to listeners. Like, mm -hmm. it's awesome having you here. Thank you all so much for being here. Yeah, and uh, we are heading over to Phoenix. Um, I think there are a number of folks who are planning to head in that direction. If you don't know how to get there or if you want people to walk with, um, is there anyone who's planning to walk or head in that direction who would be willing to basically um, tour guide and help folks find it? Awesome. So that the person with their up. hand up right there. Uh, oh, there are three people. Okay. So y'all conspire among yourselves. <laughs> um, stand up, wave so that people can see who you are. Find one of these folks and they will help you get where you are going. Excellent. All right. So we will uh, hopefully see uh, many or maybe even all of you there. Thank uh, if you, you don't come, I get more pie. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye, everyone.